I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Welcome to The Literary Life. I'm Mitchell Kaplan, and my guest today is Dave Cullen. Dave has just written a book called Parkland, Birth of a Movement. Uh, You might remember Dave's earlier book called Columbine. And uh, last night, Dave came and gave this remarkable talk uh, with a remarkable audience. And in that audience was also uh, uh, two of the parents of one of the murdered uh, uh, kids from Parkland. Do you want to talk about that a little, Dave? Yeah. First of all, welcome. Thanks, thanks, Mitch. <laughs> thanks for, for having me. This is I, I love I love this this store. It's it's amazing. But uh, and last night uh, I almost uh, wasn't sure I could go on because I was standing in the back while Tio Manny I know him as Uncle Manny because that's how the kids know him. Um, which, by the way, it didn't occur to me until yesterday. Is like I'm older than you, and I call you and think of you as Tio Manny, but it never even. And that's Manuel Oliver. Yeah, Manuel Oliver. Whose son was Joaquin. Joaquin, yeah, uh, was one of the 17. But um, the kids, the Parkland kids call him that. And he's he's like an uncle to them. And I've always thought of him that way because that's how they first introduced me to him. And uh, standing in the back, listening to him... Well, first of all, I'm just in awe of what he does because he's so creative and so powerful and so provocative. And he goes places you wouldn't imagine. He does these murals. Um, he, murals he's, for change. He's an artist by trade. He is. So I, when I first met him, too, I, I thought like, OK, you do these murals, um, you know, about your son. That's great. You're a dad who does art. Um, I walked into his office where his art is all over the walls. And I was like. Oh, like you're a real artist. You're really good at that. Who is then taking that creativity and channeling this? I could tell already is like, wow. Like if I didn't know you had anything to do, if I saw this, I'd be like, who's this artist? Like I would want to know. Um, so, and he's channeling all that. And then he does these insanely provocative things where he does these giant murals where he uses his son's face and often will have like a bullseye around it. And then he pounds 17 holes with a sledgehammer 
through these, which is just to hear it. It sounds like 17 gunshot blasts, usually through the heart or the skull of these kids, including his own kids, often splatters red blood or red paint like blood. And, uh, you know, and paints, we demand change. And, um, and then puts 17 sunflowers in the holes. And um, it's impossible to witness one of these things without breaking down well, unless you're made of wood. And, I, and you talk about that a lot last time. But I think the thing that must have been, uh, I'm going to embarrass you a little bit, but the thing that must have been uh, so um, positive for you to hear was this incredible introduction he gave in which he had just finished the book. And he talked about how, you know, he basically was joking and said, you did your homework mm-hmm. and that you got it right. And uh, the chapter that's on his uh, not-for-profit and his experience, how it moved him so much. Uh, you know, as an author who is writing about a shared experience, I'm sure there's a part of you when you publish something like this that must uh, be, that must question a little bit about how the subjects are going to react. A lot. It, it just scares me to death. Even every time I do a news story for, for any site, I quake of, um, because the subject doesn't always have to agree with that, you know, or completely, or every single point. Um, but they better feel like it captured them accurately. And then, and in the entire, the, the wider question, what if it's a, a, about, and you know, interesting, by the way, I won't name any bad names, but I'll say, you know, with nearly a year with the Parkland kids, uh, they told me which, which journalists they respected and which didn't. And I'll tell the good news. Um, Laura Miller from New York Magazine, they loved her. They like, every time it was like, wow, she gets us. Um, Emily Witt from The New Yorker, they were generally really happy with. There were a couple that like, don't. And so then I didn't use those stories as sources, but um, sources know who gets it right. And it doesn't mean, you know, and they like when it's warts and all, and they show them as real human beings. Like, oh yeah, I did have that foible or whatever. Um, It's not, you know, you don't have to kiss their asses, but but you have to capture them. Um, And I, yeah, I live in dread and fear. It's like, oh my God, what if, you know, it's like, uh, No, but really. last night, both Patty and he were uh, just completely laudatory of everything having to do with Parkland. And, and Change the Ref, by the way, is the name. We should mention yeah, that's no, there. I will, that's a, yeah. Okay, good, good, Changetheref.org is mm-hmm. where you go uh, to find out information about uh, Manny and his wife's um, organization to not only honor Joaquin, but the thing that he said, which I thought was really very, very uh, heartening, was Parkland is also, a, your book is also a, a call to action. It is. And last night, there was so much discussion about that. And we can get into that a little bit later. But the thing that I want to stress for those who have not read Parkland is that Parkland, different than Columbine, what we see with Parkland is the aftermath. Mm-hmm. We focus on the kids. We focus on this incredible group of kids. Talk a little bit about those kids and about the difference sure, in writing yeah. Columbine, right. in writing this. Right. The and why books, you cho- chose that path. Right. The two well. books are night and day. They're completely different. They both involve a school shooting, and that's about the, the extent of the similarity. And the reason, you know, I didn't really completely grasp this till I was done, and I figured I had to figure out how to summarize it on my website, and I put the two book covers side by side and titled it The School Shooter Era. And that's when I was finishing editing and I realized, oh my God, that's what this is about. Because Columbine was not the first and Parkland already isn't the last, 
But Columbine is the one that set all these others in motion and really escalated things and is the cause for this 20 years of horror we've been living through. So it, it began the school shooter era and really the mass shooter era. And Parkland hopefully is the beginning of the end and is a way out and hopefully will lead us out. And that was my intention of those books. I mean, Columbine to me is an origin story. And that book is about two things. It's what, number one, the killers and why they did it. Um, so, you know, how we, did we get into this mess? And then number two, the survivors. And how did they deal with it? How did those 2,000 kids and their families live through this living hell and survive and get past it? So that's what it's about, the killers and the trauma. This time, it's about the way out. And it's about the kids picking up the ball and saying, you know, David Hogue, the morning after, God damn it. Uh, you know, he didn't put those words, but basically like, you know, he said, we're children, you're adults. And essentially you have failed us. You're letting your kids die. A whole generation of kids, you're marching off to school as dead kids walking who might be killed at their school. You know it, you're letting us die. And so this book is about these kids hopefully leading us out. And, and I don't care about the past. And it was David that you were not originally interested in even doing this story. No way. Right? Was Talk I a little it. bit about yeah. that and how David David's comments drew you into it. Yeah, the morning after so I become sadly the mass murder guy. The you know, the the worst job in journalist and sort of journalist. But um it's horror. You know, after Columbine, even before that, I become the go-to guy who, you know, editors ask to write and reporters call me and TV shows. I found out about every one of these. You know, Anderson Cooper's producer um, texted me uh, the afternoon while the kids were still in lockdown. Another fucking shooting. Would you, you know, come right. in tonight? And of course, and I live in New York City, so I just walk over there. Um, and the next morning, so I was like deciding I've got to just stop doing this. It's just... First of all, I can't take it anymore, and, and it's pointless. You know, 19 years in, nothing changes. We're not doing anything, and why should I keep? There's no no point, no hope. And so the morning after, um, yeah, I was doing New Day um, with Chris Cuomo, and he said he refused to go down for the same reason because he normally covers these, and like, well, I can't do that anymore. Um, and I told him, I think this is going to be my last one. I need to call this quits. Uh, you know, the universe chuckled at me as it tends to do, because five minutes later on the elevator down, David Hogg was in the same segment as me. And I see him on the ride down to the street. Uh, they have monitors on the elevator. I stayed in the elevator for the whole eight minutes because I'm like, what? Who is this kid? Like, how is this a first day survivor? Like he jumped about eight stages of grief and right. I'm thinking I... 19 years of like, unfortunately, covering survivors, this doesn't happen. So I knew immediately something is weird and something is different and hopeful. And, um, and then by noon, I was writing a piece for Politico on Is This Time Different? And then that weekend that I was like on a plane down to Parkland, um, breaking all my rules because we can talk about my own secondary PTSD right. issues. But, um, because, but not to cover trauma again. I didn't go and I told my editor, so Vanity Fair asked me to go down for five weeks and do a series of stories for the site. Um, I'm like, I'm not going to document trauma and, you know, convey to the readers what it's like to go through a school shooting. I am going down to see what those kids are doing, if they can pull off this march, how it's going to happen, what it's going to take and, and cover that. And that's all I cared about. And he's like, great. Um, cause we don't, you know, who freaking cares about one more selfish asshole who pulls a trigger and does, who, right. I refuse to name him in the book and who can even, hardly anyone can name him. 
those people are irrelevant now. I don't give a shit about any more of these individual people. We need to know as a class why they do it. And the FBI has been studying that. That's great. Journalism no longer needs to cover that part. And that's why I didn't name him in the book. I have two pages about the TikTok of what happened, kind of bloodless that day. And like that's it. This is about the kids. and This is the future. And, and you talk about so many of the different people, even people that were not that that we're all not that aware of. We know Emma, we know David, we know a number of the others, but then you talk about like Jackie, you, mm-hmm. you talk about some of the other kids that you know, also were very much involved. And the question that I came away with and is, and I wanna ask you is, what was it about this group of kids? What was it, I mean, you know, Columbine happened in a high school mm-hmm. as well. And there are other high school shootings that have happened. But what is it about this particular group of kids that made this perfect storm that allowed for this movement to come? Yeah, it was, I I got about six or eight big things, but three big three. Number one is the timing, the political environment. We already had something called the resistance. People were ready to go on something. We needed, we needed an agenda, we needed someone to lead us there. And we had neither. And suddenly these kids stepped forward. Um, and number two is immediacy. They did it the next day. When outrage was high, but also, you know, we talk about outrage dwindling while well, hope was still high. I don't think it's just outrage that dwindles. And after Sandy Hook, you know, oh, Obama waited too long and the outrage went down. I thought about that till Parkland. And now I realize it's hope. Hope dies quickly. And hope, the beautiful thing is, the kids didn't need to accomplish this in a month. They needed to keep hope alive. And hope is self-sustaining. And we see that in our own lives, in our own careers, anything as long. As long as you keep having some successes, some, you, you see yourself getting up the mountain, you can keep climbing the mountain. Um, it's only when you keep failing and you're down in this pit of despair, you know, things go awry. Um, so number two is the urgency. And they just got there and, and keeping hope. But number three and the biggest is is the messenger. We thought after Sandy Hook, you know, dead six-year-old, that will shame America into it. It's not about the level of horror. It's not about the level of shame. I thought so too. We all thought that, right? We only see these things in hindsight. No, it was the messenger. And after a Sandy Hook, we thought, wow, we got a charismatic president, you right. know, a once in a generation. That we got Obama. Do it. Yes. And we've got, you know, the parents of the kids, a, a, a dead six-year-olds. How incredibly sympathetic. Nope. Um, parents can't do it by themselves. When we see a mom or a dad, but especially a mom of one of these victims, God, we just... I, I think we all feel anguish, right? It's just even imagining, I think we've all seen shows and just like the memory is just like, oh God. Or seeing Patricia Oliver, um, I cringe just at the idea, um, but we don't feel fear. We do not see Patricia Oliver or Manny Oliver or any other parent and think, oh, somebody's going to point an AR-15 at their head. They're going to be in a classroom. Exactly. They're going to die. There's no, we don't see a target on our head. We see Emma or David or Cameron or Jackie or any random kid who speaks up on gun violence, who's 16 or 17, and we see a target, a future. That is the face of somebody who's going to die because we're not doing anything. And that that changed everything. They they are the target speaking to us. And... um, now we understand, and it'll never be the same again. Yeah, and they were an incredible group of kids they were who happened targets. to be brilliant. 
They were activists in a way that they probably didn't even realize. And they were creative. Exactly. It, it was just the right people. I, you know, whether you believe in God or a higher power or fate, it was like uh, something. There was a, or just a weird fluke of timing. But uh, Emma Gonzalez is like a once in a generation Absolutely. person. There's not an Emma Gonzalez in every school. There's not a David Hogg in every school. Jackie's amazing. She's the implementer who made this all happen. She's one in a million. Matt Deitch, who's sort of like the the, the, the strategic thinker. Right. Uh, and Cameron, who brought them all together. Right. It's almost like magic or fa- some weird that like all these amazing, and, and uh, so many others, in one place and brought together on one team. It's like bringing the Beatles together, right? It's like there was some kind of alchemy that somehow those four guys who are so much bigger than the sum of the parts, and here it's like 25 kids, amazing kids who like, the right people at the right time and bam and they went for it and hey, they're listen, just brilliant kids. we were all adolescents at one time in our lives and uh, which we forget but. we do but the sense of the sense of security that they had and the sense of self that they had was you know far beyond their years i mean yeah. not to be inhibited you know to be able to get out there and speak to be and the other thing that i think happened to me, and I'm curious whether you believe this as well, is that we were kind of getting close to an election year. Mm-hmm. And so totally. they could they could wrap that all into following campaigns totally. and politicians exactly. who believed it. in terms of what they believed. It was a timing. The timing yeah. was kind of extraordinary. Because if it had been a month before election, it'd be too late to get people to register right. to vote. It'd be very last minute. If it was two years before God, that's a long, that's a long and they turned time it in, to wait. they turned it into a movement. Perfect. Explain what they did with the kids in Chicago. That was also kind of remarkable. That's kind of amazing. So I got a chapter called Peace Warriors because when I met those kids in Chicago, I was kind of amazed. So the Parkland kids, even before this happened to them, they were kind of pissed off at the coverage of these. Um, <laughs> kind of inherent racism, um, if you want to call it something. Um, because America goes apoplectic, as we should every time there's a school shooting, but it's generally rich suburban or affluent suburban white kids or sometimes rural white kids, but it's right. usually white kids. Um, meanwhile, black and brown and other people of color in, in cities in Baltimore, Chicago, Compton, D.C., everywhere are dying in much greater numbers every day. Um, and they can't go to school or go to church walking there without getting gunned down in certain places, um, which God, these kids, the stories from the south and the west side of Chicago have. And so the Parkland kids already knew that. And they didn't want to do they didn't want to solve the school shooting problem. They wanted to address the problem of of youth gun violence in America and kids dying uh, regardless. Um, so that's what they went after. And. In the first week or two, they knew they wanted to do that, but they weren't sure how. And they didn't want to be, you know, the, the, the classic white saviors. Okay, we'll, you know, do this for them on my behalf. They, they needed partners, and they weren't sure how to do that. Um, and um, a, a group was arranged through Chicago, approached them. Um, and Father Flager in Chicago on the south side um, got a group of kids two weeks out and offered, you know, would you meet with these Chicago kids? Parkland kids, this happened on a Friday, two weeks out, said not only yes, by the way, they're planning for like one of the biggest things in American history in five weeks. And they're like, yes, we'll take a break and do that. By the way, can we do it tomorrow? (laughs) Because it's the weekend. We're all in high school. Like they would have to wait another week. They didn't want to wait another week. Um, Those kids from Chicago flew down the next day on Saturday, spent at Emma Gonzalez's house, um, met, had an amazing exchange, and then really became equal partners. 
And if you saw at the March for Our Lives, the two Chicago kids who came out, um, uh, Alex King and D'Angelo McDade, with duct tape over their mouth. Really you know, powerful. Yeah, neon duct tape. Ripped it off and gave their speech and basically said, like, We've been giving this speech hundreds of times for years, and America, this is the first time you've heard us. We have been silent because you haven't been paying attention. Um, And that was a huge part of the movement of the March for Our Lives. Um, Everybody saw it. And I'm sad about the media. Completely blew that story. I mean, the media is doing so much better than with Columbine when they, like, really, we, we... blew it on all the myths and got it really long. We're so much better, but God damn it. We, we go into so many stories with, a, a, with an idea in our head or like a lot of our copy already written. With the March day, I was there. Everybody was down there. Half of the performers on the stage were people of color. Half of the speakers were people right. of color. The white and the black and, and brown people all talked about how, about this issue, about it's in cities and it's everywhere. It's not just uh, school shooters and, you know, the only stories I saw about that were Joan Walsh in the New Yorker, excuse me, Emily Witt in the New Yorker, Joan Walsh in um, uh, The Nation, and that was it. And everybody else just did their why, stuff. Why do you think that is? I think because, um, two things. First of all, because, well, my buddy who went there and helped me said, like, he was just helping. And so I was, you know, working and trying to, you know, watch the crowd. He's like, uh, yeah, I was watching the media a lot. Like, a lot of them didn't leave the media tent. And there's sort of a second tent, a filing tent um, with a monitor in there. Stayed there the whole day. Like, they, they could They were watching it on TV. On TV, yeah, from like, from 50 right. feet away. Um, and they, they already had, and I understand the media, like, people had to file like that hour or two hours. So they came with it written, plugged in a few quotes. That's a big problem it's, for our it's, media. It's we the don't... instantaneous need for stuff by the hour. And it's harder to go there and just be like, oh, yeah. and sort of think about it. Now, oh, what is this? Like, what's going on here? And then do that. Well, that's, and that, that's, that's the strength team. you bring to it. Because you're not a journalist. You wouldn't mm-hmm. call yourself a journalist. Yeah, really. no, I, I, I really do. I, I, How do you see your role? More like a cultural anthropologist, which I hopefully, hope doesn't sound uh, pretentious. No, in fact, last night someone... Some, mentioned it in the question. I freaking loved her. Yeah, no, she was great. You know, when I was an undergrad, when I took freshman year, I took anthropology. The first time I heard the word participant observer, when we we read Yanomamo, the fierce people, um, it was like hearing my calling, hearing what, like, I already did that. Like, um, sort of like in life as a person, I like, I was an experientialist where I would like throw myself into things just to see what it was right and then talk about them or write about them. And it was like, well, that's a, that's a job. That's a profession. I was like, oh my God, like I, I, I already am that person. And then I sort of like, I was sort of humble, middle-class Catholic, you know, upbringing had to do something like, okay, you can't make a job as an anthropology. I should have been an anthropologist. But ever since then, I've kind of been trying to do that. And then grad school, I studied it and like, oh, that's what I kind of do as an immersive, like, um, so not quite participant, but like almost, I, I try to like, so when I do an interview even, like, it's not like asking a bunch of questions or listening to them and writing down what they say. I try to internalize what they're, understand what they're feeling and keep digging to, to get it. And I try to take it into my body. It's sort of like uh, method acting. It's sort of a method writer. Right. Try to like 
be that person for a moment and like, and then check in with us like, like this and then like experience what they're experiencing the best I can and then spill that onto the page. Right, Hopefully so, in the way that when you're reading it, somehow it comes back off the page into you and you're feeling not just like you're in the room, but you're inside that person's body. So let's talk act. about the dangers. Of yeah. That. Well, that's- we'll be right back with A Literary Life. We're back. My guest on The Literary Life is Dave Cullen, the author of Parkland, Birth of a Movement. Let's talk about Columbine okay. and the dangers of that, how much you internalized mm-hmm. and where that led. Yeah, I didn't know there was any danger, especially <laughs> when you're covering trauma. And so all those kids, um, you know, I, I, I tried to internalize their pain and I did. I was with them. I was there from the first afternoon and... Um, and that first week was just, they were shell-shocked, and it was it was unbelievable, this, the pain. And I feel now like, I didn't know at the time, like, absorbing too much plutonium or radiation that you'll never get out of your body, that I didn't know it was dangerous to me. And that then I take it in, then I write about it, but, like, it doesn't all come out. It's just still in you. Um, and so I had something called secondary PTSD, which is very common. I had no idea it existed. And I had a breakdown uh, that first year and suffered pretty severe depression. And then it was the first was. year of, the first of, of doing Columbine. the research. Yeah. research. And I got help and I joined something called the DART Center for Journalism and Trauma at Columbia. I'm an awkward fellow there oh, and learned about it. Yeah, and actually... I didn't know about that. Yeah, it's... it's so it's for journalists who have... Who cover trauma. Who and cover it's two trauma. purposes. Uh, the primary, to, to do it better and to do it more empathetically, but then also sort of the self-care aspect and how like not to like uh, lose your mind or your, yourself doing it. Um, and it, it, It's fabulous. And uh, like a lot of teaching, like I, the first time I really, the breakthrough for me is about a year out after I'd already done the session and I was asked to speak about it and um, at a journalism conference and the first time, it was like, God, it was like going to an AA meeting. Like, I didn't, effectively, I said, um, you know, I'm a journalist and I've had a breakdown of secondary PTSD and I kind of broke down on the stage crying, describing what it was. And um, that was my first time completely admitting it in public. And that was a really powerful, I didn't, I didn't do it as therapy. I did it to help explain to them and to help them, but it helped me more because uh, it was an admission on stage that I had a problem and that, that I'd gotten help and I thought I'd gotten help, but like I was just starting. Um, and then, so then I thought I like did smart things. I had, I've gone to Tucson after the Gabby Gifford shooting to work with journalists there at, at one of the journalists' house, the local guys who are like competitors, like they were having trouble and they arranged this meeting at somebody's house and I went there over drinks one night and talked to them what it was like. Um, and, and some of the, you know, mistakes, pitfalls and, and that kind of thing. I've done that with several different... It's not, um, to, I assume, it's not dissimilar to people who are first responders totally. for these things who so, have the same kind of reaction. EMTs, after the ER fight. workers, yeah. um, uh, shrinks, right. have to take steps. You know, the interesting thing I found is like all those professions have that danger and they all know it and it's part of their job and their training and they, right. they, they get assessed and they do something. Journalists are probably the only uh, group that's in the front line who like is in denial about the fact that we have to... That that happens. Yeah, that it happens and we have to do... And getting better now for the past 20 years. So then seven years out, I didn't... Uh, when did you actually decide to write the book of Columbine? Columbine? Or, yeah. 
Uh, about, well, a, a year out, it was first going to be an ebook. John Jonathan Karp, who's now the publisher of Simon & Schuster, um, he, he was before his time. Um, he started really the first ebook imprint at one of the majors at Random House, something called At Random. This is before the Kindle existed, but there were all Sony ebook readers, and he was ahead of his time and created an ebook um, imprint at Random. And 18 authors, it was. What's her name? It would go on to write Eat, Pray, Love, Lewis Lapham. Um, so Elizabeth like, Gilbert. Yeah, yeah. yes, Elizabeth Gilbert. Sort of 17 top people. And me, I, he, he was already sort of mentoring me, and I was just sort of like for fun and like to out. Uh, and uh, so it was supposed to be like a 50-page thing, um, simple thing. Uh, take <laughs> three. I'm laughing now. It was a three-month project. I had a three-month deadline to do like 50 pages, stitch together some of my salon stories, but I said, I really want to really understand the killers. He goes, great, go for it. Um, and then it became a, pa- uh, uh, a paperback original. And after about three years, uh, he had left Random House. But um, so it, it was a failure. And it actually went through editing. And we mutually decided, this is a piece of shit. Well, I mean, you know, it's, it's not working. Um, I hadn't figured it out. And went back five years out after I got the FBI to talk on the record about why the killers did it and really had an understanding. I did a breakthrough piece on the fifth year anniversary for um, Slate, the depressive and the psychopath. That set things in motion. Then publishers were interested. So five years out, I rethought it. And that's when I reconceived the book and decided to do it from 10 perspectives. And it was going to be about, can I, can I rattle them off? Um, and, and this is my book proposal. I had to understand, and this is what five years do. I knew exactly who they were and what their role was in the book. They were the good cop, the bad cop, the angry dad, the Christian martyr, the boy in the window, um, the minister, the principal who got them uh, through the emotional wilderness, the uh, heroic teacher who died doing it, the depressive and the psychopath. Those last two Those were the... That's the 10, 10 right. protagonists. I wasn't sure I could pull that off. Luckily, I read Faulkner as I, for the first time <laughs> as I lay dying while I was doing it. And I was like... Whoa! If yeah. he can keep changing the points of view, like, I, like this is so much more wild. Right. Like, if he can pull that off, I can do this. Right. Um, and also, I also I, I did a stack of nonfiction books, but uh, read The Devil in the White City, and right. he does two back and forth, um, and just kind of brilliantly, and and it really taught me something. So when I read, I think it starts up with the, with the uh, with the architects and about ten pages or whatever, and then he switches to the psychopath story. And as soon as he switched, I was like, no, 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 yeah, I, I want to get the, back. The, yeah, the architects. And then it was like whatever the short passage chapter on the psychopath, and then he switched back to the architects. I was like, oh, no, no, I wonder about <laughs> this one. And after about three times back and forth, I was like, every time I'm like loving the one I'm with, and I'm like, well, that's what you need to do. Right, like. So the structure came very clear. Very, very. And as it went on, I actually felt like he maybe got a little too cliffhanger each time. Mm-hmm. It got a little too much for my taste, but still brilliant. That would be my, maybe my one critique. But um, he left you wanting more each time right. and setting things in motion. Actually, soap operas are another model. It's like, and I used to watch them. I was addicted to sort of a teenager. They'll have a storyline that lasts, I don't remember now, like weeks or months, but... As each one is wrapping up, 
like for a few weeks before they're starting another, another one takes... they've got you freaking hooked right. so like you know the baby is born or whatever she's a miscarriage at the trial land and we as and... readers knew just enough to know what we didn't know yes exactly and and you so thought we you knew the were story. we thought we knew the story and in reading columbine you took us in places and directions that we didn't know that existed and i had to figure out what the story was there and the structure was really hard but um the key thing was figuring out I was doing a why done it. Because uh, I grew up reading, uh, loving Ellery Queen and Agatha sure. Christie, these whodunits. You know, and the whole idea is, you know, who, you know, this mystery. It's, a, it's a puzzle. Yes, exactly. At the end, you exactly. figure it out. And so then this set something in motion years later. So Columbo was also on when I was was growing up, because I'm that old, Peter Falk. Um, and I heard it described once as a why done it. No, right. excuse me, uh, a how done it. The, the twist of that show is anybody who's seen it is like the first minute or two of the, every episode was the murder and not like just showing their hands so you could see the showing the face. You knew who did it, but Columbo didn't. And right. so the episode is him figuring out who did it. And he usually figures out very quickly. But then how do I like catch him? And I um, so it was a different kind of thing. And I, somebody called that a how done is like, oh, but that said an interesting like, oh, that's another way to skin that cat. Right. To to build suspense and have it's it's not about who you can do whatever you want and on this I realized oh I'm doing a why done it so you knew right away the killers and I have very early on the murders like but why um, right. so that's what's driving and that's and, what's and the did, whole thing carrying you through did, there has to be a burning were question. you working with Jonathan all this time. Because he then moved to 12. No. So I went through three different publishers. So then I went to Dutton. The second, five years out, um, I went to Dutton. And then I was orphaned there because uh, Mitch Hoffman, my editor, moved and went to a different publishing house. And um, his assistant took over it. And I turned it in about nine years out from Columbine. And I won't use her name, but uh, my agent was like, she's an idiot. She didn't like it and didn't like the way it was structured, didn't even want it to read like a novel, lots of things. Like uh, my agent was like, she's an idiot. And she said, she said, we need to get out of there. She's like, they're the worst, best case, they'll dump it on the market. Uh, uh, so she, she told me it's a risk. She'd already read it and thought she loved it. She's like, I can, I can, I can probably get this another place. The, the time, the clock was ticking because probably needed for the 10th anniversary. Right. Um, and we went back. Uh, so, she has to get out of the contract. They said, sure, great. Um, and our first choice both was John Carp, who was now running yeah. 12, this kind of amazing new publishing house where they did 12 a year. Uh, she called him, uh, of course you remembered it. He first saw my pieces on Salon, right. uh, the first stories, and emailed me from the very beginning. That's how I first got connected with him. He He's liked a my brilliant work. editor. He and is. The, and the team that he puts him with Carrie and all these other he is, And around. that's the thing. So I was this unknown, nobody had ever heard of writing in Salon. Um, he read my stuff and emailed me and said, because uh, then I was working on a memoir and it said, you know, I'm working on a memoir, which never came to fruition. So, he, he emailed me and said, do you have a publisher? I'd like to talk to you. Um, and then this is what really took, I said like, yeah, but it's not really in a good place yet. I'm not really ready to show it. He actually respected that more. He's like, oh, I love a writer who's like, <laughs> like a publisher. I think he was senior editor at Random House at the time. Like, right. uh, or maybe he was editor in chief. He's like, the editor of Random House comes to you and is like, no, it's not ready. He's like, that's who I want to work with. It's like, like, you know when it's not ready. And he's like, I'll be here. So he stayed in touch. So then nine years out, we went back to him and he said, I'd love to see it. Um, we had um, 
my agent Betsy Lerner, who's amazing, uh, said Betsy, I, I love Betsy. She's, she's fantastic. She's amazing. Yeah, she's she, and she's sort of my first. Big shout out to Betsy Lerner. Yeah. I hope she's listening. Yes, <laughs> and she will. She's yeah, she's, she's really she's, lovely. She's incredible. The next year she did Patty Smith's book. Who I know she's been doing know, all along um, for for more than ten years. And then um, writing her own books too. Yes, yes, yes. Exactly. She's Brilliant a great writer. Books. So um, she told John Tooze like we get we need to do some some editing, pare it down. I'll send you half of it in a month. Um, and by the way, so this is a, um, John said, oh, no, no, that's fine. Like, I'll take that into account. Just send it as is. And she said, no. And she told me anytime somebody says, uh, oh, that's fine. Uh, you know, you can send, you know, your not best work yet. Like, tell them no. She said, it's like uh, somebody like, oh, I'll just take the bra off. Like, <laughs> no. Like, if you've got a book that's at a B or B plus level and you think you can still make it to an A, if you show them the B plus or the B version, they'll think, oh, I can get this up to an A. Never do it. Get it to an A, and blow then, them away, and they're right. like, oh my God, I can get this into an A plus. Or work and get it to an A plus, and they're like, I can't believe this. Now I can make this a masterpiece with right. my help. Never, never only show them your best work. And that was like, I was scared, but like we waited a month going, and we went through two whole edits of that half. We sent the half and uh, two days later, he, later he made an offer and said like, yeah, I, I want this book. Um, and yeah, so then it went with 12. And, and it made brilliant. such a mark when it came out. What, so tell me about how was the struggle with PTSD oh. during that period? Did it, did it bring it all back when you had to start talking about it again? And well, it was really, the problem was seven years out, I had a breakdown. And it's because I underestimated, um, I kind of wrote things in order. The, so for Conway, there's the before story of the killers and the after story. And I approached them differently. The killers, um, I spent five months just doing Eric Harris. Every day I got up and listened to some of the music he listened or watched some of his movies, read some oh, of his right. writing, just tried to do a whole immersion. I wrote in his voice, wrote as him, not for the book, but just tried to be him to really capture him and who he was and learn what I didn't know by like trying to write as him and then not realizing what I couldn't. Um, so it was immersive process for five months. I thought that would do me in. Didn't. That's like, for me, it was like this, uh, studying a disease under a microscope. It didn't get inside me. And then I did four months just on Dylan. So the killers took almost a year. That's how I did the killer story. Um, and then I sort of built them together. Um, the, it, was the, it was the survivor story that got right. me. And I did them mostly in order, um, but as a writer, you know, like when something's giving me trouble, then I put it aside and move on and come back to it because you can't get sort of hung up. Um, well, usually I do, but then in this version, I didn't. So I could, um, but I also paced I picked like three or four chapters that I knew were going to be really hard and I made sure they were separated in time, which was really smart, except I, I misjudged one of them. So I knew the hardest one was going to be uh, Dave Sanders bleeding to death, the teacher. And it, it, it was every bit as hard, the hardest thing I've ever done, writing that chapter. And every day I picked a different person in the room and tried to do it from their point of view, what it's like from the kids, the uh, the, what do you call it? Uh, Eagle Scouts trying to stop the bleeding and showing pictures. Of, oh God, it's uh, hellish. So that, that took me a month to do and was the hardest thing I've ever done. Um, and then I had some easy chapters after, I didn't know the second hardest chapter was going to be the one which I did very soon after it was about Dylan's funeral. Hmm. I didn't know that would hurt me. And uh, it was so, it was so hard and it couldn't be by the and that, 
got you. Well, it was that combination. Of... And then there was another school shooting near Platte Canyon, near me in Denver. Right. I was still listening, which I watched on TV. And then it was another. The final straw was this weird 60 Minutes thing about just the sadistic people who like beat up bums for television for for money and it just that was the last straw of like really destroying my faith in humanity even though it was unrelated i just shattered i i lost my faith in humanity and then i just went into deep depression where i wasn't getting up out of bed i was couldn't it get paralyzing and yeah i wouldn't get out of bed until well. two or three in the afternoon right. crying all day and like listless mm. wasn't opening the mail going to get groceries I was just like a walking zombie, then couldn't sleep. And um, and like an idiot, it took two or three weeks before I realized, like, I'm not getting over this. And I'm like, I'm going to be in a mental hospital or dead if I don't get some help. Like, this is freaking serious. And I'm not taking it seriously enough. And then I like, you know, so I went, you know, then got urgent and got really helping up. I never do this. So I was, I said it was an Ockberg fellow. Uh, Dr. Ockberg is one of the greats on trauma um, specialism. I'm like, well, I'm. You know, interviewing these experts. I, so you went I, I and talked him. to somebody. I called him. Yeah. And I, I mean, I had my own shrink who's like, great, but I, I'm like, I need to call the big guns. Like, he really. And I learned some key things, which I should probably uh, convey is like, uh, he said, you're having a relapse. And the thing about relapse is uh, it's really debilitating because uh, you think you're back at square one and you've gotten nowhere and you're seven years out. And that's the worst part of it that's like, and he was completely right. That you think like, oh, I got, I climbed this mountain to get, or I climbed out of this hole. It was really hard. I never have to go back there. And now you're back there at the bottom of that well. And it's like, I can't do that again. I can never do that. I, it's the fear of the route out is too debilitating. That's what you think because your body feels exactly the same, but it's not true. Statistically, relapses are almost always much more brief. And the further you get away, the more brief it's going to be. So if it took you a year to get through this the first time, it might take you a month. Right. Who knows, but give or take. And he said, actually, the things you've been telling me, you are already coming out of it. You don't realize that because you're so in despair that you can't even see. Right. And that was actually the last thing I needed. But so I will say to everybody and to the parking anybody who's having the relapse a year out or after. Well, that's what I was going to bring it to. This I is mean- probably no... It's not gonna. It's not what you think. Even though it feels right. the same, it's probably going to be a quicker road out, and that is can be your lifeline. Knowing like, oh, I only maybe have to get through a couple days of this, or a week, or a, a month, and not like the hell again. Um, so know that when it happens to you, that's the best thing anybody ever taught me. What, what do you? What What is your observation? I mean, we know like Manuel and his wife and. We know a few of the others who become activists mm-hmm. through this. But what about the kind of depression that so many of the victims, that are not victims, but the murdered, the, the, the murdered kids' parents mm-hmm. are suffering now? I, yeah. mean, I mean, I suppose they are getting huge amounts of help like anyone would when they, yeah. not, when they lose a child. It's just always so astonishing to see people rise above that and put it into action in some particular way. It is. Action really helps. I, there's a couple things before I forget, because I tend to get off on tangents. Uh, I will give another piece of advice to any members of any communities um, is the number one thing that I've heard from all victims of all of these every year is like, uh, don't rush the healing. And you probably think you're not. But let me give you some examples of what 
victims are hearing is rushing to healing is like, uh, well, first of all, the word closure, right. which they hear as get over it or like just get healed. And they're like, there is no getting healed. I'm never, or, um, or, or tough love of like, you really need to move past this or you need to <laughs> right. go back to work or you, friends, family. Go back family, to school, whatever. go yeah, back to work. Yeah, it's like, uh, come on, just like put it, you know, you need a, I think she needs a little push. Just like, right. like, you know, push this behind you. It's like, no, no, you know, like maybe they do, maybe they don't. They don't freaking need you to tell them that. Right. And like, they already have a therapist or they have a good friend they're talking to about like, unsolicited advice so just kind of be there for them be there yeah and listen the morning after with columbine almost all the kids this is a little scary they wanted to talk to me because i was an adult they wanted to talk to any adult Mm. and get advice about this except their parents because the first day of columbine they wanted to be with their parents so badly they just wanted to be hugged held and talk to them by the next morning they wanted to get the hell out of their houses because The moms especially and the dads were too close. They were hovering. Are you okay? Every five minutes, are you okay? Are you crying? What can I do? Like they wanted to help too much and the kids needed to be left alone. So they wanted to talk to an adult who wasn't going to be trying to help them. The other interesting thing was uh, Manuel got up and, you know, there was a whole discussion about, you know, what are the causes, you know, and, you know, his comment, which is, I think, similar to your belief, it's similar to my belief, he said, guns, guns, guns. Mm-hmm. To, 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 because somebody was talking a little bit about that whole meme about mental health mm-hmm. and all of that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was talking about how, look, to, you know, it, it makes a difference mm-hmm. uh, in terms of elections, who you, who you vote for. Totally. So look to see who's supported by the NRA, who's supported by the, you know, the, the, the gun lobby, and vote against them. Work against them. And vote, period. You know, I have a little mixed feelings. And David Hogg has kind of mixed feelings. Um, They had such a breakthrough. Um, The previous midterm election, 21% of people under 30 voted, which is pitiful. And by the way, it's kind of worse for 18 because, like, the closer you get to 30, the the higher percentages, like, the 18 to 20 is even way lower than that. So that was pitiful. Um, they, They targeted that. They got it to 31%, which is an unheard of jump. So they made a huge, but still 31%, that's still yeah. shit. And I should know, but like 65 year olds and above, it's like way higher. There are so fewer people over 65 than your cohort, yet they're out voting you. They're getting the way because they're voting in huge numbers and you're not. So get your ass. Yeah, it's it's um, really about, about getting the vote out. And, and because we know that uh, it's and not pop- about it's not about changing minds so much. This is getting the people who feel as you do out to vote. Mm-hmm. Your book right. gives that kind of hope, and the message that you're giving is a hopeful message in Parkland. And you're doing what you do so well, which is doing it through the eyes of others and telling others stories. And that's Holy- what's so compelling about it, Dave. You know, I think we have so much to talk about that next week we're going to also continue this discussion. So those of you listening. Make sure you tune in next week to The Literary Life, where my guest will once again be Dave Cullen. I hope you like what you heard and that you'll please share your review on Apple Podcasts and also give me your feedback at Books and Books on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Subscribe to my weekly conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and Revolver.com. I'm Mitchell Kaplan. 
Thanks for joining The Literary Life.